What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hi there. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for joining us again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through their culture and operations. And I work with organizations to develop inspirational leaders to create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. I provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud helps companies to do just that through their mobile platform that is built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more about WorkProud and a recent study they've commissioned about pride in the workplace at workproud.com forward slash Dr. Elise Cortez. With us today are two senior executive leaders from Deloitte. Jeff Tuff is a principal at Deloitte and holds various leadership roles across the firm's sustainability, innovation, and strategy practices. Stephen Goldbach is a principal at Deloitte and serves as the firm's chief strategy officer. Together, they have co-authored Detonate, Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Wind to Survive, and the recently released Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming human, Fatal Human Flaws, which we'll be talking about in this conversation today. Jeff joins us today from Boston, and Steve comes today from, from New York City. Jeff and Steve, welcome to Working on Purpose. It's great to have you. Nice Thanks for having us, Elise. Yeah, nice to be here. It's a great, I, I keep great company. I like this. <laughs> I like who comes into my studio. So I, as I said to you before we got on air, I, I slightly liked your book. It was fantastic. And I do make it a practice to read uh, the books cover to cover when I come on because you're part of my educational program, you guests. Um, so I want to jump in first. It seems to me when I, when I was, I became aware of your book, I thought, what a timely book. What a perfect time for this book. Um, so here we are, we've been knocked down by the pandemic, and, and you sum up in, in the book that the book is about looking forward and working through the natural human instincts that keep people frozen in place, thinking and analyzing, and instead forcefully gathering the will to act in the face of deepening uncertainty and do something. I thought that was really compelling. So first I want to ask, you know, is, is this something you've been working on for a while, or where did the book come from, and why now? Sure. Well, I, I, I can jump in first on that one, Elise. Um, it, it does, in, in many ways, and in retrospect, feel as though this was a perfect time for some of the concepts in, in Provoke um, to hit the airwaves, hit the bookstores, um, in no small part because we have, as a society, for the first time in a long time, come to viscerally understand what uncertainty feels like. But it's not a new topic to us. It's not a new topic to the writing and the research that Steve and I do. Um, and it, it's really been catalyzed by the experiences that we've had serving our clients and serving the industries that we consult to over the course of the last, call it two decades or so. 
the the core observation at the heart of, of provoke and of and of detonate our previous book um, is that we are living through not just in pandemic times but we are living through right now a shift in the nature of of essentially the context that we all live in and what I mean by that is for decades and decades in business and in our personal lives we have been generally governed primarily by linear change mm-hmm. meaning. The world changes, it's not perfectly predictable, but generally we've been able to rely on data from the past to guide the decisions we make, to take risk out of the decisions, uh, to take risk out of the moves that we make, whether in business or in our personal lives. What we've seen over the course of the last, call it five or six years in particular, is a real shift away from linear change to one of more exponential change. And what that has meant is that we need to shift our stance as leaders from being primarily concerned about taking risk out of decisions to constantly having to face uncertainty. And that's a, as I say, that's something that we've lived uh, in real life with our clients for some time now. That requires a completely different toolbox and set of skills than historically we've built up within companies. And it just so happens that as as uncertainty has become more visceral for all of us, uh, some of the ideas in Provoke in particular seem to be resonating well with the audiences that we've, uh, that we've gone out to. Wow, I just, I, I guess, you know, it just, it's just when it, that makes so much sense that it's been in the works for a while and there's been a crescendo. However, it just feels like, gosh, what a perfect time to bring this thing out. And I, I do, I feel like what you've done here, gentlemen, is you have, you've offered a, a, not just a, 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 some inspiration to step into it, but you've given us some, some really valuable tools to do that. And so one of the things that I found really interesting about your book is this, you already talked about the momentum of change and such, but you talk about how, um, this this idea of when leaders need proof and more, more analysis to be able to make decisions, it's getting harder and harder. And and you talk about the if and the when curve, and you say that it's at, at these peaks when new opportunities shift from possibility of if to the inevitability of when, which I thought was so interesting. And the, and the chance. And by the way, your whole analogy of the roller coaster in the very beginning totally made sense. I hate roller coasters, by the way. So um, <laughs> I'm not one of those that gets Ma- Many adults too, at least, do, at least. It's well, not, you're not alone. I didn't like them as a kid either. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about that, that if-when stuff. Well, there. yeah, the, I mean, the, the concept is uh, that certain trends emerge and uh, some of them die out um, because they're either not desirable from a customer standpoint or they're not technically feasible or that you just can't make money uh, taking advantage of those taking advantage of those trends but lots of trends gather momentum over time and hence the building up of potential energy at the top of the at the top of the roller coaster analogy and as it builds up and builds up and gathers that potential energy, eventually there's, it's very clear that it's each of desirable, feasible, and viable. And then it's just a matter of when the trend will come to fruition. Uh, and the key uh, to understanding the difference is that as a leader, you have to make different choices uh, about what to do in a business that's dependent on that trend, depending on where you sit in that roller coaster. So if you're in the if phase, you still got to plan for the possibility that the trend could come to fruition. If you're in the when phase and your business is predicated on uh, the opposite trend being true, and it's just a matter of time before that new trend overwhelms it, then you're effectively in a wind down business. You just haven't decided to do that. And we don't think it's a very good 
choice to accidentally end up in a wind down company. Uh, wind down company being a uh, the moral equivalent of a pop up firm to take advantage of something, except it's not explicitly popping up. It's actually just in existence already. So the, it's critical for the leader to understand where you sit in that in that phase change and shift your actions based on whether you're in the if phase or the when phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated how you articulated whether or not we've got an opportunity here or whether we need to start winding down. I thought that was very, very extremely well articulated and useful. So when I was looking at what you guys were doing, it's like, you know, you guys are definitely talking about behavioral economics, but you guys are really also psychology majors here too in this book, right? So some of the stuff you talk about with these, with the human biases that we're going to cover here are fascinating. So I, I found this both fascinating and frightening that we humans do this. You write, in general, we miss trends not because we aren't looking, but because our brain processes the raw data of what we see through an unconscious filter of our own experiences. Unless you consciously learn how to turn that filter off, it can be hard to see something right in front of your nose. Yeah. So how do we turn it off? What do we do? So, so, so why don't I why don't I set up why that condition exists and talk about what we what we describe in the book as the emergence of organizational blinders, and then maybe Steve, you can talk about the underlying fatal flaws and biases biases that cause those. So, going back to this theme of uh, the nature of change itself accelerating, it, historically, when we've looked forward into the future and tried to plan what we're going to do, we've been able to have a reasonably straightforward view of. Uh, what the likely future is, and then some upside and downside boundaries. It's The, the future has been, as I said before, not predictable, but it, it doesn't really, the, the surprises have been um, far fewer and far uh, far lesser in magnitude than they, than they have been recently in the time of exponential change. So we've been able to look forward, use historical data to say, you know what, I know the range of different outcomes that, that are going to happen in this industry or with this opportunity, and I can plan accordingly. Increasingly, Steve and I would argue that as exponential change uh, impacts the world, we actually need to massively open our peripheral vision to the possibilities in the future. And one of the tricks for doing that that we talk about in the book is to not rely on projections of the future, but to have the humility as a leader to understand you don't know the way the future is going to turn out. And instead, the best way to plan looking forward is not to try to project, but try to imagine multiple plausible, equally plausible versions of the future, and then start to place some bets according to which of those versions you think is likely to come true. The problem we've got, though, is that even as a well-informed leader of any sort of organization, you may say, look, I really want to take that broad peripheral vision and, and really consider all the different outcomes. What, what ends up happening is we inadvertently, because we are human beings, not because we're, we're ill-intentioned or dumb or, or evil in, in any way, because we're human beings, we naturally fall prey, prey to blinders that come from being individuals acting within organizations. And eventually we have to we get back to a narrower range of vision that doesn't allow us to see the possibilities. So let me turn it over to Steve to describe what's underlying some of those blinders. Yeah, a, a lot of those blinders, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit a little bit later too, uh, a lot of those blinders are ground in cognitive biases that we are all subject to. And as Jeff said, it's we're subject to them because we're human, not because we're uh, inept in, in any way. It's We are all subject to them. And we our hope is that by naming some of them so that people are, uh, are aware of them, whether it's uh, the availability bias or the status quo bias, which we can get into in a a little bit a little bit more detail later 
if you're aware of them, you can put in place mechanisms like diver, you know, like creating more diverse teams that will help alleviate the impact of those human biases on the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Completely agree with that, Steve. So then, of course, if we take in what both of you have just said, then, then, and you write about this beautifully in your book, the opportunity as leaders or anybody in the organization is to get really good at pattern recognition, which I find both, you know, your that's probably that's your jam, Steve, right? That's what you do all day. Um, but so, talk to us a bit about this this opportunity to develop this pattern recognition as leaders. Yeah, and and this is actually a ma- this is actually a major problem because all leaders have pattern recognition, and the patterns that they've built that recognition on, as Jeff described earlier, are based on linear change. And so it feels like we've got more time. It feels like the change is not gonna happen quickly, but unfortunately the way exponential curves work, that feels like a very small thing today, but it quickly becomes overwhelming in the future. In the book, we talk about the story of the early signs of cord cutting being a segment of less than 2% of the population in 2008. And now cord cutting behavior and the use of uh, the use of streaming services that allow you to not have appointment television anymore are you know, pervasive, um, uh, obviously. And that, that was where the executives in question missed those early signs because they were, because they were so small. And so the pattern recognition that we want to create is one where instead of rejecting small early signals, you say, ah, I've got to learn to actually test the contours of what's going on there. I've got to, I've got to create some tests. And this is something that Jeff and I are becoming increasingly um, clear about, which is that the status quo has the unfortunate reality of not feeling very risky, but actually being incredibly risky in an exponentially changing world. And doing something new and different feels risky, so we want to avoid it, but actually isn't risky because you're learning more by taking action. And so that's what we, uh, that's what we, when we talk about the, in, the instinct, we want to shift people's instinct from studying to shift uh, that instinct to acting. Mm, yeah. And, I, and somebody who is, I have a, a predilection for action. I quite like that. But yes, I do get frozen in, in analysis paralysis too. So you guys have already talked about the if-win stuff. So I do want to come down to something that I thought was really, a, really, frankly, just a smashing core hypothesis that you put forward in your book. Um, and that you said that once once an if becomes a win, the nature of the leader's response must change. The opportunity is to focus on the moves you can make that will shape the trend to create a better future, one where your organization is, is advantaged. So that's just bold, right? And I, I really appreciate that that core hypothesis. It's also inspiring. Well, well, thank you for saying that, Elise. I, I, I hope it also feels very practical when people read about it in the book, because as we as we think about the five core provocative strategies that any leader can use. If you've used the first two effectively, the first two being those that that you need to apply always when you're in that if phase that Steve talked about before, then you're really well prepared to act when you see the phase change from if to when occurring. And as I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail um, later on in the discussion, the which of those other three moves you make and which of the what type of bold action you take is entirely dependent on how you entered that phase change to begin with. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome, Jeff. Great way to send us into our first break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with the authors of Provoke, How Leaders Shape the, F the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. They are Jeff Tuff and Stephen Goldback. We've been talking about the importance of developing pattern recognition to see trends. After the break, we're going to talk about some of those fatal human flaws, those human biases that we're all stuck with. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Before we get back to the program, I want to invite you to check out my book, Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause on Amazon. I wrote it to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all its stakeholders. And I use the content as a basis for my vitally inspired leadership and my Grab Your Gusto programs. If you're just joining the program today, my guests are Jeff Tuff, a principal at Deloitte and holds, who holds various leadership roles across the firm's sustainability, innovation, and strategy practices, and Stephen Goldbach, a principal at Deloitte and serving as the firm's chief strategy officer. They are the authors of Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws, which is what we've been talking about today. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So next, gentlemen, let's talk about some of these fatal human flaws, these, these biases that we have here, and, and help us really understand what they are, why they are, and, and why they're there. So um, you talk about the, how these, when, we, when we're looking at the if to the when stages here, and then you think about how this relates to how we're processing the information and looking for opportunities. So if you could talk to us about how these flaws get in the way of us advantaging our companies. Yeah, so why, why don't I actually lay the foundation for this, um, actually rewinding to some of the concepts from our previous book, Detonate, which, I, which in some ways, though we didn't know it at the time, does kind of set the table for Provoke. So Detonate was a book about um, essentially um, challenging the playbooks that have gotten us here because they're not going to get us there. And so the, the first thing that gets in the way of most organizations who are trying to provoke the future they're looking uh, for is that they fall back on the, the kind of playbooks and the orthodoxies of the organization that they operate in. And, and orthodoxies here, I, by that I mean the, the, the stuff that's just in the ether about our company, our industry, what matters, what doesn't matter, what our competitors are likely to do. And the challenge is that as we have lived, going back to the point of linear change, as we've lived in a world that has been governed primarily by orthodoxy and playbooks because being safe and staying safe was the name of the game, we've forgotten the trick of learning inductively and being curious, going out and trying things. And so over time, we think what's happened is, and this is in part due to the, due, due to the natural human biases that, that Steve talked about before, we just we, we've lost the <clears throat> excuse me we've lost the will to go and consider different ways of doing things and so our our um, call in detonate was 
really question orthodoxies when you can. Not, not every orthodoxy needs to be challenged. Some of them are actually good and, and uh, necessary. But, but every once in a while, pick up your head, and increasingly all the time, pick up your head and say, geez, is this really the way that we need to do things? Mm-hmm. That will be the first step to understanding when you are operating primarily because of these so-called fatal flaws in the human biases. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I hate hearing is that's just how we do things here. Oh my gosh, really? Why don't we just go ahead and get the get the coffin out right now, <laughs> right? Um, so in your book, you talk about you know ten separate biases, ten separate human flaws. So when you start thinking about those, we'll talk about a couple of them in, in this segment here. But which of them, if any, would you say people would say, well, that's not really a flaw. That's that's what. No, that's not a flaw. Well, I, I would say there by there are biases about how humans behave. And the, um, you know, I'll, I'll call on a couple of them here to illustrate the point. And it's not that they are um, problematic to living life and how, how humans have evolved uh, to survive. But if you're living in it, if you're trying to survive in business in an exponentially changing world, they actually create uh, massive problems. So let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about one of them specifically, the affect heuristic bias. The affect heuristic bias means that we are uh, we are wired as human beings to not react until we feel strong degrees of emotion or pain. Okay, mm-hmm. or so, so mm-hmm. it's that affect that we respond to either strong happiness, strong sadness. So I talked earlier about the cord cutting segment. The opening story of the book is about uh, taking some research that had been done in the video and and telephony business to an executive at a uh, media company and saying, there's this strange segment of consumers that's doing something new and we don't totally understand it. They want really high speed internet um, that they're willing to pay a premium for, but they don't want the video programming. So they want to unbundle when every company at the time was trying to bundle video internet and phone and, and this, by the way at least this was this was what steve 12 years ago or something right right in the very wow ages of the wow of the, yeah so 2000 2008 so the so the idea there was because the segment was so small it didn't elicit uh an emotional response in the executive in fact he laughed it off and kind of said 1.75 percent why would i care um, and of course, we know that there was the kernel of, you know, the entire business model of every streaming company today. And we know that most of the major media companies today have built their own streaming businesses to compete with the ones who were taking advantage of that trend when it was clear that it was both uh, feasible, desirable, and viable. And so th- that's an example of where a, a, there, there's nothing, again, fatal in the real world about it, but in business, in an exponentially changing world, not having the uh, feeling to react is problematic. And, and, and when powerful. you, when you, oh, I'm sorry, Elise. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, when you couple the, the type of bias that Steve is talking about there, the affect heuristic bias with a number of other biases that essentially amount to creating an echo chamber, that's where things really start to go south. So for example, if I just rattle through a few of them, Availability bias is something that's natural in all human beings. We tend to overweight information that's more readily available to us than information that's hard to get. Mm -hmm. Status quo bias. 
the tendency to prefer things to stay the same because we don't we as human beings are are loss averse and if we if we feel change happening it feels like we're losing something we're losing the present and therefore we tend to look for information that reinforces the status quo reinforces the way things are and so in the book we we talk through another three or four of these that are central to the to the idea that if you allow yourself to fall prey to these biases just as individuals you will end up essentially just continuing to make the same decisions you always have historically and not being able to see that massively widened peripheral vision. When all of those human biases start to interact together in an organization, then uh, what, what we talk about in the book is being organizational tendencies, which maybe Steve, you want to comment on one or two of them. That's where really we, we get the blinders um, yeah. falling into place. Yeah, the the organizational tendencies we all see them. At least you've seen them in your in your practice, right? It's where we get in meetings and we want to avoid embarrassment, right? So we spend lots and lots of time instead of having the real discussion in the room. We have the one on ones pre wiring everyone so that the meeting isn't actually a discussion. It's corporate theater. We, um, you know, we 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 get rid of all the exploratory research that gets cut in every last budget. So we're not doing anything to be creative or new. And effectively what this does, when you think about how organizations and how people make decisions, what do they do? There's an available pool of information that everyone can draw from and are biases and the way we behave as an organization cause individuals and teams to select from that pool of information, right? They select some data or some observation, and then they draw a conclusion from it, right? And the bias occurs in what data is selected and whether it's data that conforms to your already prevailing view or data that's gathered because the organization isn't looking outside where it tends to look, that creates a blinders on what's available. And unfortunately, you start to draw the same old conclusions that everything's fine um, until you're missing really important trends. So that's how the the human biases uh, uh, contort with the organizational tendencies to create those blinders. They just prevent us from looking outside our traditional sources of data. Yeah. And it seems to me as you're talking, Steve, that, that the more uncertain and scared and, and afraid intense that we get the worse those blinders become the more entrenched we become in those beholden to them yeah that, i mean that is another that is another bias that that exists which is the uh escalation of commitment bias so okay. the like if, think about how um you know the reaction of uh, the the famous blockbuster story where in reaction to netflix they said we're not in the dvd to home business we're in the store business and that's a you know it's again it's an escalation of commitment we see that all the time where businesses instead of challenging the business model that they have um, in the face where their business model is clearly going to be outmoded uh, what they do is they try to make their business model suck just a little bit less so this is akin to the the we talk about one of the stories we like to tell is how you know, tailoring, uh, like a master tailor and going to get a custom piece of clothing made is an industry that is threatened by technology being able to measure a human being uh, using your using a phone. And um, instead of adopting technology, 
a lot of tailors do what, you know, what the moral equivalent of sucking a little bit less is they put an espresso machine in the waiting room, right? To make it, <laughs> to make it not, to make it a little bit less worse to go there. But in fact, when you're competing with not having to go at all, it, it, that's not the point. So escalation of commitment, that's a, that's a challenge too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in this next bit that I want to bring up here, I, 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 this is smashing, guys, what you've done here to help us understand just what happened with this example I'm about to give in relation to how that how we act in the wardrooms and as leaders is, is like brings it home. So you, you say in the birth of a provocation chapter, and I quote, the failure of the United States to anticipate and prepare for Pearl Harbor is a prime example of what happens when orthodoxy based on past experiences and embedded belief systems congeal to create an inability to act. As we saw in part one of the book, many boardrooms and C-suites are beset by the same issues. Wow, if that doesn't get your attention and make us understand, like slap across the face, what does? Yeah, and, and I, I'll speak on behalf of both of us. I don't think either one of us consider ourselves expert historians. So there's, I'm sure there's plenty <laughs> of your listeners who know a lot more about Pearl Harbor and a lot more about history than we do. But it was interesting to us as we explored what happened at Pearl Harbor um, alongside other dramatic events like 9-11 or even like the advent of COVID that there are some real sim- similarities across those. And, and I'll, um, I'll, try, I'll try to characterize generally what we've seen. Let's take those three examples, generally what we've seen across those three examples and maybe draw some lessons from it. Uh, the first is that every one of those events had someone or a small handful of people standing up well in advance of the event and saying, this is not only a possibility, it's likely going to happen. It is likely that we will suffer a massive naval attack by the Japanese. It is likely that we will suffer a, uh, a terrible terrorist attack. It is likely that we will suffer a global pandemic. But because of the affectoristic bias in part that Steve talked about before, and in part because it was just a couple of voices who may actually just sound like cranks, what ended up happening is the systems around us, around the people at the time, looked for all the reasonable data for why that was just a really far gone conclusion, that it was, it was just a, such a remote possibility that we don't have to worry about it too much. In retrospect, of course, it's easy to look back on these events and say they were entirely predictable. And if you just look at the, you know, added this piece of data to that piece of data, we could have said it was going to happen. But in reality, no one actually in the moment, and that's an overstatement for effect, I'm sure some people were exploring it, but no one really took the steps to run the test to understand how likely is it that this event is going to happen if we imagine different versions of the future than the official version of the future. And that's one of the things that we're trying to encourage all leaders to do in the face of uncertainty is not necessarily jump to conclusions immediately or not necessarily take undue risks because you're listening to the chicken littles of the world, but just go run the test. Understand how you can how you can be more curious and explore different possibilities for the future and position yourself so that we don't not only suffer the downside of some of those terrible events, but also we can take advantage of the upsides that comes with disruptive change as well. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. It's just it's it, that 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 whole example really helps us understand the importance of paying attention to some of these things. And I want to talk more about one of your other uh, core hypotheses uh, that you put put forth around the emotional piece of that. But let's grab our, our last break before we do that. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with the authors of Provoke. Uh, how leaders shape the future by overcoming fatal human flaws. These people are Jeff Tuff and Stephen Goldbach. After the break, we're going to talk about the. the the five principles of provocation they write about in their book. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I have one other bit of news that I want to share with you, and that is that the anthology that I've been curating for the last two years has just been released. We just actually launched it here in Dallas last week. It's a collection of 25 stories from women across the globe who share the intimate details of finding their purpose and what they're doing now to serve from it. It's called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. So proud of it, I could bust. If you're just joining us today, my guests are Jeff Tuff, a principal at Deloitte, who holds various leadership roles across the firm's sustainability, innovation, and strategy practices, and also Stephen Goldbach, a principal at Deloitte, who serves as the firm's chief strategy officer. They are the authors of the book, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws, which we've been talking about today on the show. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So before we get into the, some of those provocations, guys, I really, you, you started, you, you queued it up, Steve, but I found really compelling in, in your book that you offer uh, a hypothesis and you say, although we can't say it, this is definitively, our strong hypothesis is that, the, is that by the time something is triggering an emotional reaction, it's highly likely that the trend is at the far end of the win stage when options for influence are limited. Yeah, that has got to be one of the most important parts of your book, points in your book. Well, absolutely, and I know we're gonna we're about to walk through some of the the five different strategies that uh, that leaders can take. The longer you wait, the more narrow your options are, and uh, you know you just have to to some extent jump on board. I think I think the cord the cord cutting example is a per, is a perfect one. We see there was an original mover who sort of set the trend, redefined what it, uh, what it meant to be a media company. And now we see a lot of the traditional media companies entering in uh, and trying to compete with uh, with streaming services, not shaping the market for streaming services, but effectively creating their own version of, of, uh, of what had been created before. It's not to say that that's not uh, it's not possible that that might be a successful strategy. I think some of them have a, a good chance to compete with the market leader. Um, however, many probably won't uh, do particularly well because they're because they're late to the game. So the earlier you're able to act, the more uh, degrees of freedom you have to influence how the market evolves rather than be a market taker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Critical point in your book. So let's talk about these provocations. Just briefly treat them. You do this beautifully in your in your book. But let's start with envision the future. That provocation. Sure. Yeah. And, and Elise, I'll, I'll I'll break this down in a way. Maybe I'll handle two of them. I'll have Steve handle the other three of the five provocations. But um, if we think back to the conversation we had around the if to when phase change. Okay. So we we think about these five as existing in an in and excuse me in an array starting with very early in a trend or very early in the if 
phase of really not knowing if something's going to happen. So this this one you named Envision is a foundational capability and a foundational pro, uh, foundational provocation that we argue every organization has to be using all the time these days. You know, historically, and, and by Envision, by the way, I'll, I'll give it its snappy name in the market. Scenario planning is often the way that it's that it's uh, referred to, but. You know, historically, a lot of companies would roll out scenario planning every once in a while in their strategy practice and then put it away and maybe pay attention to the scenarios. We think this is a necessary always on capability these days. What scenario planning very simply is all about is, and again, I, I mentioned some of this before, having the humility to say, we don't know what the future is going to be and we can't know. And in fact, if we try to predict the future, we're going to get it wrong. So why don't we instead try to bring into sufficient relief alternate versions of the future so that we can place our bets across those alternate versions of the future and shift those bets over time dy dynamically and continuously in a way until the future in a way where we can position ourselves until the future starts to reveal itself. The interesting thing about scenario planning is sometimes when you look at the challenge head on you're going to be able to see the possibilities. But but sometimes you actually need to look at it with what I think of as being kind of a glancing view. So Steve, Steve and I have had some debates over time as we've as we've um, talked about how to apply the the ideas and provoke to the real world about whether or not the pandemic was predictable. Okay, so, and, and I like to provoke our audiences and say, who called the pandemic? Who actually named that this was going to happen? And one of the interesting things we've discovered is it's actually very hard to create scenarios that help you envision the pandemic actually coming to fruition. But it's easy if you take a glancing view at the possibility through the lens of other industries to come up with a pandemic being a real possibility. So very quickly, what I mean by that is if, for example, we had been thinking about the future of airline travel, let's say we had some airline clients or we were airline executives ourselves, and we tried to imagine what the future might look like for airline travel, if you do scenario planning well, then one of the scenarios you end up with is a massive collapse in air miles traveled. And as you start to dig into the reasons for a massive collapse in airlines traveled, one of the, one of the dominant possibilities behind why that might have happened is the, the arrival of a global pandemic. If we had all been thinking about the world from our, all our various different vantage points with a scenaric lens instead of a straightforward linear lens, my guess is there would have been a lot more momentum and a lot more preparation for something like a pandemic taking hold. So that, that's what we mean by the envision provocation. And it comes very tightly coupled with the second one position, which I'm happy to talk more about. But let me pause and, and see if you have any reactions to that. I thought that was extremely well explained and very compelling. I don't. Do you, Steve? No, I think we can uh, we can tackle position and then get into the three that are more in the when phase. Okay. Okay. So let, let me keep on rolling then. So it, um, envisioning is all about seeing the, seeing multiple different versions of the future. Positioning then is with those alternate versions of the future in mind, as I've, as I've said a few times, spreading your bets in a way where you're ready to act as the future starts to reveal itself. And, and this is necessarily about, I wouldn't call it a hedging strategy, but you have to be able to take into account every one of those futures. And by the way, there's a um, for anyone that's not familiar with scenario planning, there's a simple rule of thumb that we've come to learn as scenario planners over time it, that, that you can never have more than four scenarios for the future. It just gets too complicated to plan again. So don't imagine this as a, you know, a 16, 20, 25 version uh, of the future, massive mathematical challenge. There's generally four is best practice. And so what you constantly need to be doing is saying, how can I 
spread my investments and spread, for example, the type of talent that I bring into my company and the, and the type of tests that I run in the market in a way that account for all possibilities of the future until I get more information about how the future is actually unfolding. If we are constantly envisioning and positioning, then as we pass through the phase change or into the phase change from if to when, then we're ready to act with purpose, usually as quickly as possible to be able to create the advantage that allows us to provoke the future that we're after. And ultimately, which of the three, which I'll, I'll let Steve talk about in a moment, but which of, the, which of the three we end up choosing will be a function of how clear a line of sight we have to the future we want, how much direct influence we have over the outcomes of the future, and the degree to which we need to work with others in an ecosystem to actually bring about that change. And that ultimately will impact which of the, which of the three uh, when provocations you, um, you decide to take action on. Excellent. Love it. Yummy. Yeah, so you've got three different provocations. And again, these are at the when phase. I think it's, it, it's let me start with uh, the least sexy of them, which is just adapt. That's the one where you've um, waited too long and you effectively have no choice um, but to say the future is uh, here and I've got to shift my business model or I'm a wind down firm. Mm -hmm. So this is the moral equivalent of the local newspaper finally putting up an online edition. This is the uh, traditional media company getting into the streaming business. This is where you've acted in a you've acted in a way that it, the trend is here and now instead of shaping how that trend is coming to fruition um, you're effectively trying to define uh, a, a, a segment for yourself in that particular industry again it's not a it's not necessarily a fatal strategy but if you don't adapt that's sort of like the last that's sort of like your last chance the other two are a little bit earlier in the phase change where you have the opportunity to shape how the future would evolve and how the trend comes to fruition. So the roller coasters near at the top, you can push it and you can change the direction versus an adapt. You just got to get out of the way or jump on board. Um, so with drive, drive is where you can act early enough to shape the future. So you have to think very carefully about what is the behavior that you want to cause either in your customers or in uh, your company and very purposefully run tests to try to see if you can shape that behavior. So early on in their existence, for example, Uber paid to have cars on the road that would simulate the wait time for their customers, even though demand was relatively low, because they wanted to make sure that customers had a very positive experience the first time they went to they went to Uber. They were driving the market for ride-hailing services. They were they were shaping how customers perceived it. They weren't studying. They weren't asking customers whether they'd like to be picked up by a stranger. They were paying to see the market. Right. And that's a that's a, a good example of what it means to drive uh, to drive a provocation. Uh, the act, the the activate one is a little more complicated. This is where perhaps you're a smaller actor. Perhaps you don't have a direct line of sight to your customer and you need to work with different partners uh, in in your ecosystem in order to activate it. I like to call activate our bank shot. So I want to um, I want to. Uh, for example, in the book we talk about Mozilla, I want to activate the developer community 
and I'm going to make my stuff open open source so that I can get a different, I can change the nature of the of the marketplace. So that would be uh, the five provocations at least. Okay, so thanks, Steve. Great, and I really appreciate. It. I was going to ask you for an example on the drive change, and you brought it right there with with Uber. That was so great, and and uh, you know it's interesting. I did not know that they paid. Uh, drivers to go and simulate those rides in, in advance. I had no idea that existed. That's a great example. So as I said to you in my notes, uh, I really was fascinated with the Activate Your Ecosystem um, that you talked about, that one, the last one you were talking about, because for me, and the work that I do is, you know, when I'm working with an organization and we're going to be working with all of their stakeholders to be able to bring everybody on the same page around you know, their purpose. So there's, you're, to me, that particular provocation is, is heavy collaboration. Is that right? Heavy collaboration and a, a new set of muscles, a new set of skills that many organizations have had to use in the past. It, you know, it's, um, I think many of us have been trained to believe that the more you can control a market, the more you can actually influence the way ter- things turn out, the better positioned you're going to be. And that has, in time, led to a belief system and a business model that has rewarded big-scaled companies because they're being efficient. Mm-hmm. We actually think that we're shifting into a, a time now where scale is not um, rewarded with efficiency or, or you don't get to win with scale because you're being efficient. You get to win with scale because you learn faster than anyone else in the market. The mm. faster you can learn, the more likely you are to be able to send the right signals out to other players in the market or to use information to your advantage and to get others to play with you. And it's actually, it's really interesting to see some of the ecosystem plays that are um, emerging in a whole variety of different fields. I do a lot of work in energy um, these days, but it's actually some of the smaller and and what you would think of as being less influential companies who are uh, activating and assembling the ecosystems in order to enact change as we move through an energy transition. And my guess is we're going to increasingly see that uh, the ecosystem mindset, which in some ways comes more naturally to disruptors and entrepreneurs, is something that we need to teach large-scale companies as well. Yeah, I'd like to see a lot more of that education you know, happening much earlier in our educational system. That would be amazing. Imagine what we could do with that. Yeah. So, guys, what, what have we done here? We've already gotten, we've already um, gone through almost a whole hour together. We've come to the end of the show. And so, you know, this show is listened to by people all over the world. And the whole idea here is to be able, people come to the show because they want to learn how to create workplaces where people actually want to come. They want to understand how to become inspirational leaders who bring people to their best and how to do business that betters the world. What would you each like to leave them with? Well, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start and then Jeff can pile on. I, I would say increasingly, and I think the pandemic brought this into focus, I believe it's going to be harder and harder and harder for people to separate their work life and their personal life. And we just need to treat each other as total humans and understand everything that we're dealing with. And we all have very different, and we all have very different situations. And so there's gotta be a respect for uh, the human the human condition that em- employers need to have that create a uh, precondition for people to feel like they're bringing their entire selves to, to the workplace. Because people are going to increasingly make decisions on where they work based on how they feel about it. And I think that's some of your work, Elise, that you want people to feel like they have a purpose. The I think one of the most foundational things that you can do to bring that purpose is, is allow people to be who they are. And you'll get, by that nature, you'll get a better and more diverse workplace. 
Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Jeff? And, and there's a critical aspect of what Steve is saying that is central to our book's hypothesis, and that is that um, you need more and more different people and in order to create the type of environment that is that, are, that is going to create the condition to win moving forward. There's a very simple uh, action to remove the organizational blinders that we talked about before that involves uh, engendering cognitive diversity. And the way you get cognitive diversity is through actual diversity. And importantly, on top of diversity, inclusion of all the voices that you invite into that community to be part of their natural selves or their whole selves, as, as Steve says. It's a, it's a very simple maneuver and it's got proven results. It's really difficult to, to pull off in part because of all the old playbooks of the past that I talked about before. I think, I think what, I'd, I'd, what I'd end on though is a, is a quote that um, I, I um, repeat as often as I can. I won't tell you the, the source of the quote, or maybe I will. It's me. I made up this quote, but it, I, I, I like it <laughs> as obnoxious as that sounds. And that is meet uncertainty with curiosity and a bias for action instead of worry and a bias for analysis. If we can instill that in everyone listening right now, then uh, we'll be a, in a better place. Great way to finish, Jeff. Thank you, guys. I'm so glad to know you both. And now that we're connected, you can run, but you can't hide from me. Thank you for being on Working on Purpose. It's been great to have you. Thanks for having us, Elise. Fun. Look forward so, to having that cocktail at some point. Right, absolutely. <laughs> New York City, here I come. So if you want to learn more about Jeff Tuff, Steve Goldback, and the, the book or the work that they're doing, you can start by just Googling Provoke the Book. And what you're going to find is the book on Amazon and then probably a Deloitte page. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for their work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via a recorded podcast. We were on here with Samuel Cook, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sanity Desk, talking about how to build a better digital world. Next week, we'll be on the air with authors Rabbi Malka Drucker and Nadja Gross, talking about their book and the work they're doing to help people move from aging to saging in the second half of life. See you there. Remember, that works at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.